This is a recording of the first hour from a recent and private three-hour conversation between two friends, Majid Nawaz and Sam Harris, who have been key public voices on polar opposite sides of the COVID mandates debate. To gain access to the members-only full three-hour conversation and all subsequent additions to this dialogue, please subscribe to Radical Media via majidnawaz.substack.com. So, um, how you been, brother? Um, yeah. How how are you doing? Let's, yeah. uh, how's the family? How's how's life? Everyone's fine. We're missing you, man. I mean, it's yeah. been too long. Obviously, with lockdown and stuff, it wasn't possible for anyone to see friends. Friends, sort of, we used to see each other a lot more yeah. than it's been. Yeah, I, I think I've seen Jordan Peterson more than I've seen yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> well, I <laughs> somehow don't actually, doubt it. He's uh, <laughs> been touring, and he came through London. And I took my friend Osman, who's my MMA coach and my co-host on my one of my shows, uh-huh. and uh, we went to see him in the green room. And uh, he was very kind. Tammy was there. Uh, he was very hospitable, and he had a few few people there with him. Right. And uh, it was interesting. I, I got to meet Stella Assange. She was in the green room. Uh-huh. So we got to say hello to her. How, and, where, uh, what was the I, venue? I, where was it? In, uh, it was the Hammersmith Apollo. Yeah, right. So we went. That's quite far. It's quite a mission for me from where I live in East London to get to. But, you know, uh, it was Jordan. So I went over, and he was kind enough, as I said, to give us the uh, the guest list. So we went over, and... We had a, we had a, it was a nice, he, he was, um, it was one of those, uh, bi- biblical, uh, exegesis that yeah. he does on Cain and Abel. Yeah. You know, it was one of those. Yeah, so yeah. we, we sat through that. Then we so, said hello to him in the end. And then uh, long story short, that ended up in, um, me just doing his podcast, which was the, the, which is currently the one that's just come out. Oh, good. Two days ago. So that, that went well, but I hadn't seen you for, I think, when was the last time we met? It's got to be pre COVID. So it's yeah. at least three years. Yeah. Three, three it's plus time, years. It, have you have you been to the states in three years or timeline have you been to the- yeah yeah of course I have yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah, yeah. so you I'm, so you can travel coming again but there was a period there where you couldn't travel freely to the states right you had- there was a period we couldn't travel anywhere we were we the, it, unlike you guys our entire country was locked down <laughs> like you, you guys at least had a separation of powers you had an additional problem though didn't you because you had a, that HBO show you were working on and then you couldn't get back and forth or was that all COVID related that that was all yeah that all in the middle of um, you know when COVID first kicked off. Yeah. Nobody could get get anywhere. Yeah. Until until they decided so it was when they shut everything down and then they decided that once you had two shots you could travel. But between the period of COVID kicking off and shutting everything down and the two shots is right. when we had submitted the HBO script for episode one. Yeah. And HBO took a decision that everything that had not yet gone into actual production, so you know, actual lights camera action right as opposed to us which was script one in episode one written you know we had a it was then kind of that that's not the stage where where you're actually filming on set right so they canceled everything that wasn't at the stage of filming when covid kicks off so we lost it yeah yeah it's too bad bad. the luminary thing i had this luminary podcast at the time we lost that one too yeah what, what then then in the middle of um in the middle of the lockdowns i had to shut quilliam down because we we couldn't travel, and by the end of um, by the end of uh, what we were doing, it was um, it was all foreign related work, you know, mm-hmm. trying to trying to get to places. So then that shut down, and then then I only had, only had MB- LBC left, and then of course that got taken from me right. in, in the end. All right, we'll, we'll talk about all <laughs> so, that. I'm sure we had to fundamentally. Yeah, you've uh, you've work had a lot what, going on. What to do next? <laughs> um, Where you been, man? What's been, what's been going on with you? I mean, it's it's all been good. I mean, far less change on my side because, you know, I was just by sheer dumb luck, perfectly set up for a global pandemic in terms of just the day-to-day operations of my business and my professional life. So yeah. n- nothing changed. I mean, all my team was already completely remote. 
you were all already online. Basically. Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there really, yeah. there were all kinds of hassles associated with the pandemic, obviously, and and there were you know there's the kind of the general stress of that. But there was no you know in terms of actually running my operation, basically nothing changed. So I, I just was incredibly lucky there. That that is that is. Uh... I, like I, I mean, had no, I, I had think, no lecture dates. I think I had one, maybe one yeah, conference I was yeah. supposed to speak at that got, yeah, I was supposed to speak at South by Southwest, and that got canceled. There maybe was one other thing on the calendar that got canceled, but like nothing was affected materially in terms of what I do day to day. You still, you're still doing the uh, meditation app, yeah? Yeah. Just remember we, because last time I saw you or spoke to you properly, that was the turn the app was taking. It was, right. it was going to focus on meditation. I don't think you'd let yet launched the meditation app. I think I had, because I think you I had. saw you just yeah. before COVID, given right. what you just described yeah. of your yeah. life. So, yeah, and, and the app is coming up on, I guess the app had probably been out for about a year or so when I when I saw you. But right, so it was, it was new though, wasn't it? Yeah. It was very new, yeah. How's that going? It's going great. It's really, uh, it's very interesting to have these two digital boats I'm rowing in simultaneously so that the app and the podcast are superficially the same business. I'm just pushing out MP3 files to the universe, but they're completely different experiences as far as creating them because in Appland, I get nothing but happiness and good vibes <laughs> from people. It's just, I mean, it's just pure pleasure. It's just, you know, you changed my life. Thank you. I mean, like there's never any malicious misunderstanding of what I'm trying to do or there's no one's ever clipping me out of context and trying to make it seem like I said something I didn't say or whatever it is. But in, in Podcastistan, as you know, there's much more controversy. So I, I bounced between these two worlds. And uh, it's quite amazing to realize that it's possible, you know, in app world, I could have just a completely positive encounter with humanity, to, you know, hour after hour. And really, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like I'm living on a different planet when I'm dealing with, with the app. And when I'm dealing with the podcast... I'm, I'm living on a planet that I think you're probably pretty familiar with, just uh, filled with uh, you know internecine horror, and uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to observe because it, it, it in in both of our cases there seems to have been some rocky moments in, and that's an understatement, in our public facing positions mm. since we last spoke, and both of us have been observing each other. And each other's respective rocky moments, I think, right. from afar. This is the first time we've managed the, to be able to get back together. Now, if I may, though, I think this is uh, just, I think it's important for me to say, to be true to myself. Mm. I do believe with as, as beautiful as the last email that you sent to me was, mm. I do believe that in my observations of your rocky moments, I have managed to honor our friendship in a way that I hope has left you in no doubt that even in moments of fundamental disagreement, my relationship with you is based on a friendship. And I've always had the view that when friends disagree, they should be able to talk to each other in a way that at least uh, helps them see that the other was coming from a good place. So I don't know how much I'm at liberty to reveal of your email that you sent me. Mm. I don't want to uh, reveal more than you're comfortable with. But uh, what I will say is that the email that you sent me that led to this conversation, I'm grateful that you are the kind of person that is able to look inwards as well and reflect. Because I didn't really approach you for, for that email, but 
I'm, I'm appreciative of it, and that's why we're here speaking. But there's probably yeah. a lot. Well, let, let me just yeah. Let, moments. let me just fill in the blank there on the, on the assumption that we're going to release this and other people are going to hear it. That's why I was being cautious about yeah. wording because I didn't want to. No, yeah. no. I mean, in that email, I, I offered you a, a private apology, but I, I'm quite happy to offer you a public one. And to some degree, this apology may extend to a few other people in our circle. I mean, they, they, the people are in very different buckets, you know, with respect to many of the details we're going to talk about. But I should just say that I haven't followed you down the various rabbit holes you've gone down in the last three years, you know, with any depth at all, right? So I've, I've seen some of the stuff you mostly on Twitter. When before I deleted my Twitter account, I was seeing how colorful your life was getting on Twitter, and. And uh, you know, a lot I want to come to you deleting your account. By yeah, yeah. The way. <laughs> yeah, okay. We can't not speak about. Sure, that. <laughs> no, I'm happy to. Uh, it's something I probably recommend for you as well. But mm -hmm. um, looking from the outside, you know, frankly, I didn't want to know too many of the details because it, it looked fairly crazy to me what, what what was going on with you. But it was of a piece with what was looking crazy with you know Brett Weinstein and Elon Musk and lots of other people who were you know friends of whatever degree and. You know, I, I was not commenting on, you know, I, in your case, I didn't say anything publicly, I don't believe, until I was asked point blank about what I thought was going on with you. And as I told you in that email, I, I answered, in a, you know, I was being asked about you and many other people in, in, in the same sentence and was not especially agile in differentiating the various cases. And I think I said some things that made it seem like I was you know, that I didn't consider myself your friend at that point, right? And that, that is something I, I sincerely regret because that's not what I meant to convey. And, um, you know, as much as we, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know what to hope for from this conversation as far as our actually converging on, you know, a shared belief system about what's actually going on in the world. But I never wanted you to feel that I was taking a um, position of, of distance from you, you know, as a friend. And, you know, the, the truth is I, what I owed you before I said anything publicly about what was going on with you and, what, and the kinds of topics you were touching, I owed you a private conversation to figure out what was going on with you. You know, before I which we which we know. had agreed to, right? Yeah, yeah, and that got yeah. you. So what ha what happened there is well, I, I don't know that we have to get into the details of why that didn't happen, but I mean, briefly, what, what I, I was reluctant to talk about these topics publicly, and I, and I frankly, I still am, but. The need for you to talk, to give you a platform to talk about them publicly evaporated when I saw that you were on Rogan's podcast, which is obviously a much bigger podcast, and you you know you're reaching everyone you want to reach through R R Rogan, so you really didn't need any favor from me in the podcast department. But so then what happened is I, I, I kind of lost the opportunity to actually just speak with you about what was going on and what you were thinking and why you were thinking it. So in any case, it's just to say that I'm sorry that I didn't, as a friend, just get connected with you before I was in a position to speak publicly about you know, any of our, any of the things we see differently. Mm. And I feel that way about, you know, frankly, I feel that way about several other people to various degrees. I mean, there are people who I, I have had some private, you know, intercessions with, and then it's kind of spilled out in public. There are people who don't fall into this category, like, you know, like Dave Rubin, you know, I, I went round and round in private before it spilled out in public. And it's just a very different situation with him. And I haven't known frankly, how to navigate this moment where, you know, I have a public platform and many of my friends have a public platform and I notice them saying things that I think are, you know, unfounded or irresponsible or even frankly dangerous. And I feel some obligation to react publicly, if only because somebody else asked me on their podcast what I think about 
you know, what's going on, uh, you know, in with X. And I haven't known, I, honestly, I haven't known how to navigate that. I, you know, no solution seems obviously correct to me. Like mm. to say nothing just because a person is a friend or was a friend seems irresponsible. At a certain point, once you turn up the kind of the volume on their their heresy, right, or their or their lunacy or whatever it is, and there are some cases where you know someone has an enormous platform, and I think they are doing great harm, or or likely doing great harm, and and the fact that they are a friend or were were a friend still makes it inconvenient for me to be tongue tied when it comes time to talk about you know what's going on in the world, but you know loyalty and friendship has to count for something, and so. And I just noticed this weird dynamic where if, if you've met somebody and you've had dinner with them and you've laughed with them and you've had fun with them, even if only you've, you've only done that once, then they do something spectacularly unwise in public, you feel differently about criticizing them. And hmm. maybe we should feel differently. So maybe, maybe the way the balance should swing is that we sh- you know, even strangers should be treated more like friends. I don't know. But I just, I, I, I'm just you know, confessing that I'm not comfortable with the haphazard solution I appear to have found on this issue. Mm. You know, I feel like there are many people I've oh. criticized or not, depending, and it it often depends on you know just how many how many times we've been at dinner together. Okay, well, uh, f- from my side, this is what I was referring to when I said I appreciate your email. Uh, thank you for volunteering in the in the case that this conversation does go public. Thank you for volunteering the information yourself that you sent me. This apology. I didn't want to volunteer that for you, so I was just alluding to a nice email that mm. you sent me. But it was appreciated because it was unsolicited and because it was unqualified. It was a open and unhesitant apology with no caveats. So that was received in the intention that I believe it was sent because the absence of any excuse-making or caveating and a simple sorry is an indication to me, at least, of sincerity and intention. So I appreciated that. It's why we ended up here in this conversation. From my side, though, I hope what I was alluding to when I opened up in this way was to, to just say, I hope that from my side, there hasn't been anything that you felt has indicated any, anything other than me always saying that I'm here in case you want to speak. Mm. So when you reference that, yes, we did have that conversation planned. In fact, as, as uh, you know, I came to you before I went to Rogan. And for whatever reason, that couldn't happen. But thank you for acknowledging that it needed to happen, at least. And thank you for making this opportunity happen now because I don't think if it hadn't have been for your email that we would have ended up so quickly managing to arrange this. I've always yeah. been texting you in some of your moments that from me looking at them look like the Rocky moments as I described earlier from afar, such as your deletion of your Twitter account. Mm. I remember texting you then and saying, listen, you know, sending my love. And prior to that, when you went on that podcast and there was some conversation about Hunter Biden and beds Mm. And being under your bed or something with children or whatever you said there, I also then messaged you and said, listen, if you want to talk, I'm here. Because from my perspective, clearly where, Sam, we've been not only on opposite ends of the debate, but this is one of those Marvel movie you know, situations where that Captain America Civil War situation occurred, right? We've been on not only opposite ends of mm. the debate, but we've been quite prominent voices on opposite ends of a particular global debate. So the fact that we're sitting here laughing, smiling, and talking, I think is an achievement in itself. Yeah, I think you've yeah. got to appreciate that. That shows me that despite everything that's happened, there is always hope in, in the human bond when happened upon genuinely and sincerely. And I say happened upon because I don't believe that 
we control necessarily where that, we call it rabita in Arabic, yeah? Where that bond, where that relational connection, where it sits, where we find it. You know, that's like who you fall in love with, who you find is your best friend at school. You know, sometimes the bond of friendship emerges and you don't have any control over it. There's no rhyme or reason as to why right. you feel comfortable with certain people and not others. Uh, we can obviously ex post facto justify it and rationalize it, but sometimes it's just a matter of the hearts. So I, I think the fact that we're here having this conversation, even though we were on opposite ends of a debate that was a global debate, but also on prominent opposite sides of that. I mean, it's no secret. My appearance on Rogan was probably for the views that you subscribed to at the time, because I, I don't know where you are now, so I'll, I'll mm. use it in the past tense, where you subscribed to at the time, those views, probably what I was saying felt like I incredible heresy or conspiracy, like conspiracy theory thinking and heretical thinking that was ungrounded in any basis. And likewise, those that were in, in, the, in the kind of subscribed to the kind of views that I do probably had similar emotions towards some of the stuff like the Hunter Biden clip where it blew up or whatever that situation was with beds and Hunter Biden. Uh, they probably there, felt there were that no beds as far as i as far as <laughs> i know it, there were no beds yeah <laughs> was it no it was, beds was it, it children it, under the bed children and children in a basement was the uh the, oh, yes, it dead children in the basement <laughs> yeah. is the okay ascending so phrase yeah. yeah so i i think if we can if we can if we can ride those storms and come out the other end and sit here and have this kind of conversation then what we're achieving i, I believe genuinely sam is a mm. Hopefully, a wiser because we're older version of what we first did with with our previous situation. I mean, that's why. What, uh, surely, those are the lessons we learned from that. And uh, right. I don't think, I don't think talking about whether or not Muslims are inherently terrorists, or whether or not atheism is legitimate, is any less as we did. I'm caricaturing the kind of conversation right. we had. Is any less animating or difficult to navigate, especially when it was because it was at the peak of. A lot of the troubles and the war on terror were still ongoing. Troops were still in Afghanistan. It was a different world, remember. So, and and the stakes were a lot higher. Right. So, I think we managed to get through that, and after getting through that, remained friends, which doesn't happen always in 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 those sorts of dialogues. I mean, how many podcasts have you done where you end up, you know, basically developing a friendship from it? So, I think that that's for me a basis for why I I was optimistic that you and I, in particular can navigate our way through this. And who knows, right. because in 10 years' time, Sam, look, I'm, I'm somebody who, in my life experience, and it informs a lot of, obviously, of how I articulate what I am going through at any given moment is my experiences, because they were quite intense. So in my life experience, I've gone from uh, people that I would have died for to them never speaking to me again because of yeah. changes in my personality that I've made, right? So, so I've seen a lot in life. So in 10 years' time, as intense as this conversation or as difficult as it may have felt for us to sit down and talk, may feel trivial. In 10 years' time, we may be dealing with something that both of us realize is so urgent, so important, that the universe is at stake, you know, and everything mm -hmm. else that went before it doesn't matter. And who knows, we could be talking about the same thing. So that's how I view things like that. I think it's important not to get ahead of ourselves. In regards to, if I may, what we just went through, I do think it was incredibly important. I do think a lot of the dust has settled. I am optimistic that if you are willing, we can have a reasonable conversation about it because I think a lot of the dust has settled on that. And a lot of the people that were calling me certain names, I think it's, it's, it's not the case anymore that those names can stick, to put it politely. 
Hmm. And in my case, I'm not really calling anyone names. So I'm not interested in whatever you've said up until this point. Less interest me less than what you're going to say to me now about what's happened up until this point, if you get me. Right. Yeah. If yeah. That, makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I just, I'm not quite sure which end of this, this tangled object we should uh, touch first. It's, um, can, can I start by yeah, saying this? Because one thing you said, just to pull on one, one end, mm -hmm. when you said you're not sure how to have these conversations, one thing I will say is that I believe the answer was already there in front of us. And I believe that you lost faith in the fact the answer was there already in front of us. What I mean by that is not that you didn't go ahead with the agreed podcast that you and I had planned to do before I went to Rogan. This isn't a rebuke. It's not the physical act of that podcast not going ahead. I'm talking about the, here I'm talking about the heart reality. I'm saying in the heart, it struck me as if you were scared that us talking could lead to an argument perhaps because of experiences you've had with other people. And so the lack of, or the loss of faith in the fact that we could talk is what I'm describing as your, as your sentiment as described by you when you say, I didn't know how to approach it. Because mm -hmm. I don't share that sentiment. I, as vehemently and as vocal as I was, and as vehemently as I took the positions that I did that were probably in juxtaposition to yours, as my communication, the history of my communications with you, I hope suggests, I still felt very comfortable having a, maintaining a private relationship with you and speaking about it if you wanted to, because I've never doubted for a second that in our conversation that you would misrepresent me in any way or, uh, or insult me directly one-on-one, -on -one. and which is why, as you know from our previous conversation, I said to you, listen, if you don't like how it turns out, you have veto over it. We, we'll both agree that if one of us doesn't like it, then none of us publishes mm. it. We have to both agree that it wants, we want yeah. it to be published. So I always had that faith in you. I, I, I worried that you lost that faith, not because of me. I'm not saying that you lost faith in me. I'm saying I sense you lost faith in, in the ability for that to happen, perhaps because of all the intensity around you. Uh, perhaps, and you can correct me if I'm not getting this right, but I, I felt that perhaps the belief that such things were possible where, where dialogue could happen in a way over a topic that is so, that is so disagreed over, and still we could end up with some benefit from such a dialogue. I feel you lost faith in mm. that. And, and I'm judging it on, on statements that I've seen you make, such as, you know, it's dangerous to talk about this. I'm not going to have these conversations. I, you know, or, or the sort of thereabouts with certain people that you right. believe were, were speaking in such a vocal way about it. So I do believe it does matter who you speak to. So I'm not saying that this works in every case or in every instance. I think with you and me in particular, it was, if we were to sit down and talk, there was always going to be a benefit. I'm not going to say it would have worked because what does worked mean? But it would have been a civil dialogue that would have had benefit and value and would have still ended in an increase in love and friendship. Mm. And that, that's my belief. Yeah. My concern was not and is not that we couldn't emotionally have the conversation and still feel good about one another at the end. So it wasn't that the friendship would be in peril necessarily. My concern is that given the nature of the topics, there are certain asymmetries that almost guarantee that the conversation is, is not going to culminate in something that's satisfying. And in certain cases, depending on the topic, yeah, it could be publicly irresponsible. And th this is the way I felt in the, the, you know, the proffered conversation with Brett Weinstein about you know, COVID vaccines and ivermectin, et cetera. The reason why I didn't want to have it is it just was patently obvious that neither of us are relevant experts on the safety of mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. We're not actually the people to, who should be saying, here's what the data show. And the fact that 
we could become some semblance of those people by really digging in and spending a lot of time obsessing on on studies you know just represented for me too much of an opportunity cost and it, again it, it didn't seem responsible in the middle of a global health pandemic to prop ourselves up as the people who are going to offer our own strong opinions about the, you know these particular topics you know the, and then i also felt that there was an, given the style of what i would call, still call conspiracy thinking there are certain asymmetries where and that i've run into this as as i think you know on you know 911 truth conspiracy thinking, right? It's like, well, when I talk to someone who's convinced that 9-11 was an inside job and that, you know, Al-Qaeda had nothing to do with it, what they bring to the table is a blizzard of detail, which it's impossible to effectively rebut. It's impossible to do it in a way that's satisfying to them because they're way more in the weeds with all these details than I could ever be. And uh, you know, depending on the topic, again, it's, this is probably not so true with 9-11 truth, but I think it's very true with things like the pandemic. It's impossible to do it in a way that isn't confusing for an audience, right? And so, I mean, just to give one example, if the, quote, conspiracy person raises specific issues, whether it's about 9-11 or COVID or Jeffrey Epstein killing himself or whatever it is, raising a bunch of arcane details, which I'm not familiar with, just leaves me in a position of saying, okay, well, listen, I, I didn't know that, you know, Jeffrey Epstein made that phone call at 3 a.m., right? I didn't, I hadn't heard about that. And just the mere ignorance of that detail, which I am quite certain in, in 99% of the cases is truly irrelevant, even if in fact it's real, right? <laughs> looks like you didn't do your homework. Like, oh, you, you, you don't know the melting point of steel? Okay, well, then do you really know the jet fuel burns hot enough to melt steel? You don't know the melting point of steel? And you look like someone who isn't up to the task, because the truth is, it's actually not a task that anyone can be up to unless they make that particular conspiracy theory their full-time job, right? So in your case, I haven't, as I said, I haven't followed you down the various rabbit holes, but I know what I think about many of these rabbit holes without going all the way down to the bottom. And I can tell you why I, I can be confident about certain things without knowing many of the details. But in a debate on a specific topic, it's hard to get that across. Yeah. And so, so I, that's I, why I, so, I'm uncertain about how we should touch many of the things you think okay. you know right. well, in, in, or have learned in the internet. Sure, you know. <laughs> I think I know. It's, uh, it, I, th I think there is going to be, there, I think there should be a way to have this conversation. But before I offer any view on that, mm. I want to offer you a, uh, I'm going to throw a phrase at you, but I will explain the phrase. Yeah. I, I'm going to offer you a constructed agreement with what you just said. Okay. But what I mean by constructed agreement first needs to be ex explained. I will constructively agree with what you just said. And uh, why I say constructively agree is because it can be a correct position to take that somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about shouldn't speak about a topic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Thank you. I'll, I'll take that <laughs> yes. as a compliment. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, why that is not a straightforward agreement, therefore, and why I'm using the phrase constructed agreement is because, in my belief, it just so happens that in this instance, you were the wrong one, even though the point you're making is correct. Mm. And so it is correct to say that somebody who's not really the, the, the expert on a topic or the in-depth expertise has not been gained by them, because who defines the expert depending on which uni they went to? Well, let's just say that it's not by their own admission a topic that they are the strongest on. Yeah, so that way we strip any need for competition over institutions or validation over which particular certification of expertise is recognized. We just say that if by their own admission, they recognize that 
the topic they're, they're speaking on isn't their strongest, isn't their forte, then of course, what you're saying is correct, that they should perhaps step aside and allow for those for whom it is their strongest particular area of knowledge or their forte to have that conversation. And so I don't believe you're saying anything wrong. I believe that in this instance, that happened and the people that you're naming were merely attempting to repeat arguments that had been made by, yes, a minority of dissident epidemiologists and others, but yet those arguments had been made. Kuldorf and others were making very similar arguments. And obviously there's different parts of, there's different parts of the mandates that each of these people were addressing. Ivermectin, I didn't really get into, mm. to be honest, but what I got into were the mandates, which we'll come to in a minute, yeah. because I don't, I don't believe anything I addressed was outside my field of, of being strong at what I was, or the, or the, or the knowledge I was claiming, I'll put it that way. I'm trying to avoid the use of the phrase expert, which is why this is sounding so well, well, I don't think we should, because, because, because that's I, been a, I think exp yeah. expertise is real, and yet it's also true that experts can fail us or experts can be That's why I'm trying to avoid own bad incentives yeah. or, you know, so it's expert, yeah. experts are imperfect, but we have to acknowledge a difference between, you know, an expert level of knowledge uh, on a given topic and somebody yeah, who's a, a total yeah. amateur who's just yeah, speculating. The only reason I'm, I'm hesitating using the phrase is because part, uh, there's, a, there's an Arabic uh, phrase called Mahallan Nazar, which means uh, literally translated, it's the topic of dispute right now. We're going to get into what happened with the experts. So I'm trying to use a, mm. a phrase that describes more accurately without misleading anyone to think that I'm speaking about those experts over whom we're about to disagree. All I'm saying is that the, if, if by your own admission, you're not the strongest in the subject, it makes sense that those who are strongest should be speaking about it. In this case, though, I think that coincidentally, the names you've named were on the right side of the debate. And that I would say that because obviously that's the side of the debate that I took. However, that's precisely what we need to hash out. But in hashing it out, I'm not disputing that there is great value in this principle that we should speak to our strengths and allow others to speak to their strengths and not attempt to usurp the strengths of others mm. when speaking. There's great value in that. In my case, what I and perhaps a way for us to begin is what I'd say is that whether you go to my positions on LBC before I was cancelled, whether you go to what I said on Rogan, or even if you go as recently as two days ago with what was released in my conversation with Peterson, with Jordan, I try and speak to areas that I'm very familiar with. With Jordan, it was on the Middle East, and then we spoke about spirituality and, and more inner reflections. And uh, I reflected on that from a Sufi perspective. With Rogan, it was on geopolitics and civil liberties, human rights, the understanding of totalitarianism, the understanding of how ideological warfare works, an understanding of how counter-narratives work, an understanding of how fifth columns are built, an understanding of how revolutions are created from within a society, an understanding of how those fifth columns can turn into factions within, within governments that are hidden from view for most people. So uh, everything I spoke about in Rogan is stuff that I've actively been involved in for most of my life, at least from the age of 16. Before that on LBC, everything I spoke about, again, was from an area that I believe was my strong points, human rights, civil liberties. So my positions on LBC were very vocal, unlike on Rogan, where I went into what I believe was actually going on in the context of what I believe, and I said at the time that we were in, which was a hybrid war an ideological war for our minds, which we'll come to. On LBC, what I spoke about was more from a civil liberties perspective, opposing 
mandates mm -hmm. while being at the time double jabbed. So it was interesting because I was less going into at the time on LBC what the effects of the jabs would be because clearly I'm not a scientist. And by that time, we didn't have any of the adverse events data reporting for me even to say, despite being a scientist, I'm trying to follow the evidence. So I couldn't really, mm. before adverse event reporting, I, I really couldn't have a position on these jabs other than the one I took, which was from a civil liberties perspective, should we or should we not be able to say, take this or lose your job? Right. So that was me speaking again on a topic that not only I believe is one of my strongest because of my human rights back, activ activism background, but also, as I said openly and many times on LBC, and said quite regularly that in prison in Egypt, when I was held, I was jabbed by the prison authorities without my consent. Mm. And so I would like to think that I have every right to speak about that scenario repeating itself in what I had held to believe was a democratic and free country. So again, I was speaking to, I believe, my strengths. I'd also said, as I said on Rogan, that in Pakistan, the CIA conducted a fake hepatitis B vaccine program, interestingly, in the hunt for bin Laden, in the war on terror, another area mm. that is my strength. So I, uh, again, was speaking about all of those things from a position that I believe I'm very comfortable speaking to anyone on the planet about. So those are the areas that I would have hoped that you would have had faith in me in a private conversation that we would have been able to talk through, despite disagreement, obviously, because you would have been having a conversation with me as somebody that's speaking to his strengths, somebody that's speaking about mandated injections against your will, about the human rights law, around that being somebody that studied law at university, but also with my amnesty activism after that, talking of things like the Universal Declaration on Bioethics, Article 6, and the meaning of consent. I have a social scientist background. I have a political theory background. Mm. So these are all topics I had hoped that with me, you could have had a conversation without feeling like you were talking to somebody that was some upstart crossing lanes and not staying in their own lane. And that's where I say that perhaps the faith needed to be a bit stronger, because what you'll find is that while I was on LBC, I was reporting as news came out on things like adverse events. So, so what, what were you kicked taking, off of LBC for? What was the actual rule you broke? It was never clarified, and I'm in the middle of a court case, but I can give you the chronology. Mm. I've not proceeded on the court case only because I have six years, and I... <laughs> I have the view that the longer I wait, the better it is for me because I'm getting vindicated mm -hmm. every single day. But that's the topic. That's Mahalla Nizat. That's the topic of our dispute. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to assert that that's self-evident. However, for me, it is. And so the longer I wait, the better it is for me. But I can give you the chronology of how I was kicked off. I was in my in-law's place in Tennessee, and you were involved in this, not, not nefariously, mm -hmm. but in the story. I was at my in-law's in Tennessee. And if you remember, I contacted you, and that's when we set up the appointment to speak. Mm. I was at, at the time we had that chat where we set the date. I was still at my in-laws for our Christmas break when we go every year to, to visit them. And so you and I had set the date. And then I flew back as I would do every year, January, come to the UK after New Year, and was ready to begin again on LBC after my winter holiday. But um, Twitter had and other social media had carried on at that time. And so the chronology is simply this, because there was no reason given, and that's part of the dispute. It was simply, the contract was simply terminated with three months left on in terms of the date, the duration of the contract. So the reason will be what comes out in the case when whatever they reply to the legal letters saying, this is why we did it. But 
the chronology of events is that I, just before leaving Tennessee to get back to London, I did post that based upon the data that is now out already, and also based upon, and I mean here data, not necessarily the adverse events, but actually the data on the IFR of COVID, which in Parliament, as recorded by Hansard at the time, was 0.96%, which is similar to the flu. And based upon the fact that by that time, it had been unanimously accepted that the jab does not stop infection, nor does it stop transmission, which were the two points that they were saying that was being said were the reasons for why the mandates were justified. Mm. So by that time, all of that had come out. Even and, and when I say it had come out, I'm not necessarily implying that you or anyone else had accepted that that was the data, but I knew the data had come out, and I had read that data and had come to the conclusion that the jab doesn't stop infection or transmission, which in hindsight was a correct conclusion to make. And had, as a result, I had posted in December that after having two jabs, and the reason I had two, I mentioned on Brett's, our friend Brett's Wine Science Podcast, Dark Horse, because even though I'd been opposing the mandates from day one, I took the jabs because I wanted my wife, who had been locked down in this country for over a year, to be able to go and see her parents when finally she was allowed to, because she was on the verge of having you know, deep sadness at just living like that mm. in a foreign country without family around her, being locked in a home, having just had a baby. And I took the view that, as was done to me in prison when I was jabbed against my will, that if you are going to do what I then did subsequently, which Mm. I'm coming to, and oppose pretty much the whole world, then I take the view that you give people every excuse and leeway you can, right up until you do to the edge, where you do something you even don't agree with, but for the right reason. In my case, I got double jabbed out for love so that my wife could see her parents while walking to the injection facility, saying to her on the way, I do not agree with doing this, which is a direct quote. But I did so because the consequences of me knowing what I would have done instead, I knew would have been quite severe, as they turned out to be, Mm. that I needed to give every opportunity to everybody to have all excuses provided so that ultimately when I say enough is enough, it's because genuinely enough is enough. And, and that's what happened. I did the two, the two, and then they came out with the third booster. And because, as I said, I have been injected in prison against my will, and because ethnic minorities have generally for a long time been experimented on medically, like the CIA did in Pakistan with the hunt for bin Laden and the fake hepatitis B vaccine, I decided that this third one, having, having been told as we were that if we didn't get the first two, people would end up losing their jobs, that somebody needed to become a conscientious objector for the sake of a point of principle that was in danger of being lost, that the right to bodily autonomy cannot Mm. simply be wished away by the edicts of the state. These are sacred rights that are non-negotiable. And whether or not I agreed with the third booster at that time was irrelevant to me. My point was that if somebody doesn't, like the 300 in Sparta, if somebody doesn't guard this point of principle right now, that you have no right to usurp my bodily autonomy or anybody else's bodily autonomy, regardless of what I think of the booster, then the principle would be lost because the whole point of a sacred non-negotiable principle is that it remains forever. If it can be taken for any reason, then it's negotiable, not non-negotiable. So I took the view that I would become a conscientious objector and refuse the third booster and any other shot after that in the name of COVID. And that's, I, the chronology is, it's after mm. putting that post up that Ian Dale, 
one of the other presenters on LBC called me deranged or don't call me dangerous. Mm. There was a, a whole bunch of insults came out, whatever it was. Right. I can't, I don't want to misquote him, but it was not, wasn't very polite. And soon after that, without warning, the LBC, which is the name of the radio company that we were broadcasting from, owned by Global, they posted that, that uh, after discussions, my contract had come to an end, which wasn't true. As I said, we had three months left on the contract, and the discussions were, and you know me, Sam, I don't bullshit, the discussions were renegotiating a new contract for higher pay mm. for another year and a podcast. So those were the discussions. Their tweet said, after discussions, we've agreed to terminate the contract. The discussions, as by the way, we have an entire agency and emails witnessing, the discussions were concluding a new contract. So it isn't difficult to conclude right. that it was terminated because of my position, stating that I was a conscientious objector to the booster onwards. So I suspect that's mm. the reason. However, it's all yet to be determined, as I say. I have six years for an unfair dismissal, whatever. This is not a technical legal conversation. So I, I'm going to be deliberately vague on whatever legal phrases I use, just so it doesn't sound like we're having a legal conversation. Mm. But I've got six years to conclude whatever case I have against them for what I believe was a cancellation. That's, that's pretty mm -hmm. much what I think it was. Okay, well, I, I've got a few high-level thoughts occurring to me that seem useful, at least in giving you kind of a window onto how I've been thinking about these things. So the first thing I would point out is that COVID, I mean, none of us knew the, the term COVID, you know, three-plus years ago. And now we have been living under the shadow of this thing uh, for three years, but it has been a moving target this whole time, right? So I think, you know, what we've known about it has evolved. The, the virus itself has evolved. Our policies that, you know, enacted perhaps in good faith or not uh, have succeeded or failed by you know, their own dynamics. So we've all learned a lot and forgotten a lot and had various assumptions tested which is to say that what was what's rational to believe right now about COVID or about mRNA vaccines or about anything else, or about the utility of lockdowns or school closures or any specific policy, that is different than what was rational to believe six months ago or 18 months ago or two years ago, uh, or in those first months when Italy was in free fall and uh, we were all waiting for the, the wave of this pandemic to reach our shores. So this I just think is you know, objectively true, what I just said, and it has a few consequences. So one is that it's possible to have taken a position two years ago, which will in hindsight seem prescient, but at the time, it was in fact irrational, and you were just lucky to be prescient. I don't mean you personally, I mean anyone, whether it's you or Brett or me or anyone. So it, it's possible to be right for the wrong reasons, and one shouldn't get any credit for that, right? Why, because the style of thinking that delivered that opinion is not reliable. And so I just think we, we need to be honest about what was rational to believe at every stage along the way and what's rational to believe now. And I'll, I'll agree that there are many things that I thought were true, along with more or less everybody else in the beginning, which I no longer think are true. I mean, you know, I'm no, I, you know in the beginning, I was wiping down packages with alcohol wipes because everyone thought that that you could get COVID by touching something infected, right? And then that belief eventually evaporated, and then we stopped doing that. And so that was kind of the time course of our learning about that specific detail. But 
in the beginning, once the vaccines began to arrive, we noticed that our culture, I mean, I'm speaking about the United States in particular, but I'm sure it was pretty similar in the UK. We noticed that the culture got divided along certain lines and something like one half of American society was very worried about COVID, the disease, and very eager to get vaccinated and not especially worried about the possible complications of getting vaccinated, the risks of getting vaccinated. Uh, however novel the, the approach to producing the vaccines was. And then the other half of the society seemed to be systematically minimizing the importance of COVID or the danger of COVID. And it was calling it, you know, just the flu and or less. And yet, strangely, was very scared of getting a novel vaccine and, and were quite animated over the dangers or imagined dangers of, of getting vaccinated. Right. So these two kind of toggle switches were were reversed in in these two cultures and you know I would say that in the beginning when the vaccines first became available it was in fact quite rational to want to be vaccinated given what we could see about covid and especially it was especially the case for people you know in middle age and beyond right and it was pre- I forget when we first noticed that kids had a much much better luck with covid than grown-ups did but once that became established, uh, it was rational to prioritize the con- you know our concerns about older people, uh, and that obviously is still true. But you know many people took a position against being vaccinated when certain things were still quite rational to believe. For instance, it was rational to believe that the vaccines were very likely going to minimize transmission significantly, and and that you know they in fact they do minimize transmission. To some degree, it's not accurate to say they do absolutely nothing there. It's just we were hoping they would minimize it much more, in fact, than they did without being a perfectly sterilizing vaccine. So there was a period there where, yes, it was, I, I believe it was rational to view it as a civic responsibility to get vaccinated because this is not a choice you're only making for yourself. It's a choice you're making to protect people around you who, some of whom can't actually get vaccinated. You know, I, I happen to know people who, are allergic to more or less any vaccine they get, and they have awful reactions. And so, and there are people who are immunocompromised or on chemotherapy or older people for whom vaccines just don't work all that well. So it, it was rational to view this kind of consideration of the kind of the wider circle of moral responsibility when deciding whether or not it is, it is right to get vaccinated or, or, in fact, whether it's right to mandate that people get vaccinated. And I would say to you that it really is, it's not, I mean, this, all of this gets clarified in the presence of a much more dangerous disease and a much more effective vaccine. You know, if COVID were 10 times worse, if COVID killed 10% or, or 30% of people infected, and we had a vaccine for it that was perfectly sterilizing, well then, yes, I, I actually am of the opinion that it is not just your personal autonomy we have to take into account. You have a responsibility to help protect the people who actually can't get vaccinated. If you're someone who can tolerate vaccines and you're going out among the public, shaking people's hands and breathing in their faces, uh, and we've got corpses just piled you know, to the rafters because this, is ki- this virus is killing so many people, well, then it's going to be a very simple decision. Some cop is going to show up and hold you down and give you the jab and that will be the right thing to do. Again, you just have to 
keep these variables in view. You make the virus more lethal, you make the vaccine more effective and safe. And as you increase those, the strength of those two variables, the ethics change. I will, I will grant you that COVID is not, not a virus of that sort, and the vaccine is not a vaccine of that sort. But our, our understanding of COVID and our understanding of the vaccine has evolved over, over years now. Uh, so what was rational to believe two years ago is not precisely rational now. I would say that still, I think people are, you know, that we still have the two cultures where bizarrely there are people who systematically underplay the significance of COVID and exaggerate the dangers of the vaccine and vice versa. So, it, you know, there's confusion on both sides. But the truth is, I would say that it is still true for men of our age that it's rational to have been vaccinated up until the last vaccine I think I got. I mean, this is, you know, I'm just guided by my own sense of what's rational. I don't know whether I'm ever going to get another COVID vaccine, right? I, like, I, at this point, I don't even think about COVID. How many did you get? I got four. So I got four Pfizer shots. Damn, dude. And in the beginning, I was, well, you know, so I got, the, I got the two main shots and then I got two boosters. You I got, so I got faith the, this, Sam. Yeah, yeah. Faith in Pfizer. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, I'm in a different spot, it seems, than you. But I also got COVID and yeah. COVID has evolved, right? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's much more natural immunity around. And mm -hmm. my sense of the, the risk and reward with respect to the vaccines has changed. There have been reports of myocarditis among young men in particular. So my sense of what it would be rational for a 20-year-old man to do has changed, given how minimally impactful the virus tends to be the younger you are, and given the, the special concerns around myocarditis in that cohort, right? So there, there are details that have come out in recent months, you know, or in the last six or eight months, I would say, that have changed my thinking at the margins. But in general, the picture hasn't changed. And I think it is, you know, I, I believe that the most reputable data in the U.S. suggests that we lost something like 300,000 people we didn't need to lose due to vaccine hesitancy, which is to say that had these people been vaccinated, they would be alive. Now, most of these people are older. Most of these people might have some other comorbidities. They, they might be obese. They might have, they might be diabetic, right? All, all of those risk factors are, are relevant. But that's not true in every case. And there are people who are as healthy and, and fit as you and I are who died from COVID because they weren't vaxxed. So I view it as a public responsibility not to have spread vaccine hesitancy during that period, or I view it as a good thing not to have done that. And I would be uncomfortable to have done that in retrospect. And when I see our colleagues, you know, whose net utterances on this topic have been basically to encourage their audiences to be very, very worried about getting vaccinated and not especially worried about getting infected with COVID, I think that was a net negative to be putting that message out into the world. And so that's, that, you know, that, that's where I've been and where I am. Just one final piece before you react. For the longest time, I mean, for fully, I would say the last two years, right? And certainly after the point I got, the vaccine became widely available and, you know, the, you know whoever wanted it, ran out and got it, and other people hesitated. My concern about COVID has not been about COVID. It's been about the next pandemic. I viewed co this whole thing we've lived through as a dress rehearsal for something much worse that is almost guaranteed to happen. It is, is guaranteed to happen eventually, whether it happens eventually, whether it happens in our lifetime, I don't know. But there will be another pandemic. 
There will be a pandemic that is eventually worse than this one. And what I believe we've proven to ourselves, at least in the current media environment and in the social media environment, is that we, that we are so riven by misinformation and distrust in institutions and institutional incompetence that we've proven that we find it impossible to cooperate under conditions of emergency. So I'm quite worried that in the presence of something far worse, we're going to have a, just a, an explosion of misinformation and conspiracy thinking and failures of cooperation uh, and, and distrust of institutions and of, sci- of universities and of scientific journals and of any, you know, any seemingly valid source of information. And it's, it's going to be incapacitating, and a lot of people will die as a result. And so what my main concern is that we extract whatever lessons we can from this episode so that we're in a much better position next time to respond and solve the various coordination problems that we failed to solve this time. So there's a lot there. And I'm glad to hear that your positions have moved as you've become aware of the evidence as as you've come across it. That's, for me, that can only be a good thing. But let me start by something you've also said in public before that you've repeated with me now. Mm. And that is this, this idea that the positions were rational. And if there had been an extreme version of COVID, then your stance would have been quite clearly correct. And uh, I just can't help but process that statement as an inversion of what actually happened and a justification by inversion using a hypothetical rather than just say that you were wrong. But and what, what I mean by that... What, what was I wrong about, though? Which specific claim did you think the, I was wrong? Because it wasn't as extreme. So the hypothetical that if it, had been as, if it had been more extreme, then a police officer could hold somebody down and jab them, mm-hmm. isn't what happened. No. And, no, I, and so, so I'm just pushing back on the, your... Sorry, but I'm just, just to clarify something. Yeah. I, I'm, I was pushing back on your claim that it would, be ne- it would never be justified to that violation of bodily autonomy. Yeah, so, but so, just, I just want to, I think you might be confused about what I have thought about mandates. Mm-hmm. I was never pro mandate. Mm-hmm. I was certainly pro lockdown in the beginning when we thought our healthcare system was going to collapse and we thought lockdowns could be effective. Um, now, I believe we may have learned something about how bad we are at locking down and how ineffective it is, in fact, in, in practice, though I don't consider myself an expert on that. But I believe all I've said in support of mandates is, has not been government mandates. What I've always supported is the right of any business owner to say, this is the policy of our business. Everyone here is vaccinated. If I'm going to open a restaurant and I want to distinguish myself by saying that all of our servers are, are vaccinated, I think I, as a business owner, should be able to do that. But that's just a sign of my fairly extreme libertarianism on this point. Like, I, I think. I should be able to open a restaurant and say, all of my uh, servers are, are blind or missing an arm, right? And if you want to work here and you're not blind, well, you have to go blind in order to work here, right? You should be able to open any business you want, in my view. So, you know, if you know, all of our servers are seven feet tall, right? And if you're not that tall, you can't work here. So, you know, privately mandating, you know, a certain vaccination status is of a piece with that. The one caveat I believe I would have made, although I don't remember, I'm I'm sure I spoke about this publicly at some point, but I don't remember, and I think I would still make it, is that if we think vaccination 
mitigates transmission at all, then I think healthcare workers and people working in, you know, with vulnerable populations in old age homes, etc., I think requiring them to be vaccinated. Again, you're, these are private suppliers of a business, but that all of that made sense. And to the fact that we had something like, you know, 50% of nurses defecting from getting the vaccine, again, very early on when it seemed quite rational for everyone to get vaccinated, I, I, I viewed that as a, as a symptom of a misinformation problem we had. Okay. Right. But I was not for, if you thought I was for the government forcing everyone to get vaccinated, I don't believe that was a position I ever no. supported. So so back to, though, the, the, the point I was trying to make, though, and thank you for those clarifications. I'll keep those in mind when responding to, because you've said a lot here, mm. and I just want to get to some of those points. The idea that to present, because it has been presented before, to present the idea that were the virus more extreme, then my position would have been correct. If it's not referring to mandates, that position, that, that statement would have made sense. So I'm assuming when you said that, oh, yeah. that were the virus, yeah. You're, yeah. you're referring no, to mandates. A, a certain level of danger requires mandates for our survival. Yeah. And, that, that and I think and, is and elementary. The point I'm making is that that's not what happened. So before we get to the hypothetical, where it admittedly would touch on my statement that mandates are never justified, I still think they're never justified, but for a reason that we haven't come to yet. But before we get to that, I think it behooves us to recognize what actually did happen. Because I think it's important as part of a spiritual reflection and a natural process of self-reflection that we come to terms with the reality as it is in this conversation and all others, so that when hypotheticals are presented, they can be received in the good faith that you intend them. Because otherwise there is a danger when you present hypotheticals such as that, that didn't happen. Before we speak about what actually did happen, it can look like a smokescreen. And I think that's where some people were probably disturbed by your presentation of that hypothetical in previous occasions. My view is that though I can see the logic in the hypothetical you've presented, I still don't agree with your conclusion, but that's something we can get, get to in a minute. My view is that actually, if we can first recognize the first part of your remarks, which was that a lot of people, in your view, ended up on the right side of this conversation by accident, because they didn't have the evidence at the time to make that. The evidence. Not, that tr the truth been... is, I'm not even conceding that. I think that yeah. they may be, may be more correct than they were at the time. Like certain variables okay. have moved in their direction. You know, right. you know so I, would, I would agree the that to... the myocarditis piece in young men is something that many people are you know, claiming to have been worried about all along on some level, because they were worried about vaccines all along on some level. The, 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 so the best way to unpack all of this is because you and I are talking one-on-one, -on -one, and we're not talking about other people. We're talking about mm. what we believe. Right. So I think the best way to approach everything you've just said is for me to tell you what I believe and what right. I believe I got right, and for you to tell me what you think was wrong with that. So what is it, before I start, to your knowledge, is there anything you think that I got wrong in my assessment of the COVID period? Well, so uh, let me just confess that I know very little about what you've said at every stage along the way. I, I've seen yeah. a few things that have worried me, but they, they relate much more. Uh, yeah, I mean, that would, but, that would be mutual. <laughs> 